We just stop right now, Lord, and do that very thing. All of our burdens, we gladly offload them onto your shoulders. Everything that would weigh us down in these moments or keep us from hearing your word, would you remove it from us? Help us to be focused, receptive, humble before you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Growing up, seventh grade, I met a guy in junior high. This is still back in the days in Georgia where it was, junior high was 7th through ninth, and high school was 10th through 12th. And um, they changed that as I went into 10th grade. They built a new high school. So it was ninth and 12th in the new high school. And then every year as we got older, they added a grade. And so 7th seventh, seventh grade, I met this guy in, um, in English class named Dave. And Dave was just a kindred spirit. We were cut from the same cloth. We laughed at the same things obnoxious laugh. I mean, just, you know, you're seventh graders, you're pubescent. It was just, it was great to find a kindred spirit in the seventh grade. We had a lot of the same classes all through junior high, got to be best buds. And then after ninth grade, Dave went to a different high school because he lived across the freeway and I lived on this side and they built a new high school. So I went to a different high school, but we just made it a priority in our lives. It wasn't any kind of formal arrangement or agreement. We just knew we wanted to hang out all the time. So we just continued to be really close and hang out every chance we got. Best buds late into the night, on into college. Uh, One of our favorite things to do was to go to the local grocery store on Saturday night and get a couple of those really cardboard, this is really low quality cardboard pizzas, you know the ones, it's like a buck a piece, a buck fifty, and uh, and we'd buy a pack of pepperoni and a pack of mozzarella cheese and we'd just load them down and stick them in the oven. And then we, and then about 12.30 in the morning on Comedy Central, Mystery Science Theater 3000 came on, and then we would just laugh raucously for the next 90 minutes. It was, it was a great season of our lives, and um, and I, I remember back, I was thinking about it this week, and I remember watching through college, Dave was going to uh, college in downtown Atlanta, and I was going to a college kind of uh, a little further out on the outskirts, and, and so we didn't see each other as much, and I began to watch Dave kind of slowly, incrementally, but very steadily embrace atheism. And we had several long conversations in that season of our lives and the relationship with each other. And I would plead with him and, and um, almost to the point of preaching to him. But he had grown up in church. He knew everything I was saying. I wasn't giving him any new information. And it was all ultimately to, to no avail. And uh, his conversion, or, or I guess you would say deconversion to atheism, became the thing that really kind of ended in, in a lot of ways our friendship because as I continued to grow closer to Jesus Christ, Dave continued not only to distance himself from Jesus and anything he felt was religious, but to actually begin to become hostile towards those things. And so we just, there was so much of a growing chasm between us. uh, It really, over the course of the next several years, kind of ended our relationship. And many times I've, I've asked myself, like, why did things play out the way that they did? Why did things go that way? What added to this situation? And, and as I've thought about this, again, uh, in a fresh way this week even, just thinking about this again, um, I realized Dave was raised in church, a very prominent Southern Baptist church in our community, which he attended with his parents faithfully. And I think our impulse is to say, well, that's a good thing. But in this case, it, it actually wasn't. 
See, I've scoured this situation dozens of times since then, and, and I've grown both in my understanding of God and how he works in and through the church and, and my understanding of people, and I see some realities that I believe contributed to Dave's renouncing of Jesus, and, and one factor in particular that I think set him up for failure, and it's this. Dave's family was outwardly religious, but inwardly They did not live out their faith. There was no consistent living of their faith. So Dave grew up in a home where every Sunday they were at church, come, well, the phrase in the South is hell or high water, right? They were at church, but there was nothing being lived out at home and in their day-to-day lives that, that reflected Jesus in a significant way or any change. And so, so Dave's family, didn't live out their faith. There was this damning inconsistency and it's true in any family but especially, and this is my observation after uh, 20, 20 years of uh, ministry, that when, a, when the father in the family leads his family through the motions of religion, through the motions of religious belief but his life doesn't reflect any reality or interest in Jesus at all or any change in his heart, that is a, that's a huge hurdle for any child in that home to get over as they become a young adult. And, and what's modeled in the family impacts the next generation for good or for ill because the gospel must and will have an impact in the hearts and the lives of people who believe it. If it's not having an impact, it's not the power of God into salvation or it's not actually being believed. It's it's one of those two things. Either it's not powerful or they're not actually believing it. Does that make sense? And so saving faith manifests itself in the lives of those who have saving faith. It changes us, and it's a slow, incremental change. Sometimes there are really marked, punctuated leaps of growth in the life of a person, especially early when they come to Christ, and there can be some some really marked growth. But really, it's this long, incremental change over time. But we should be seeing that in the lives of people. And so... We're starting a new series this morning in the book of James as we begin the new year and the new decade called Faith Works. Because saving faith will manifest itself in the life of a person. What they do, how they, how, how they work that out will be, will be visible in their lives. And so um, it was the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who said, the grace that does not change my life does not save my soul. And I think he was spot on. You say Jesus with your mouth all day long, but if the grace of Jesus is not changing your life, it's not saving you because it's not, it's not real. It's not real in you. And so we, we stand, uh, just a, a diversion here as we set this up, we stand in the stream of the Reformation going back to the 1500s in Europe, and I, I want to just paint this dichotomy for us as we understand, I'm setting up James and a little of the, of the background here because um, when we talk about works in the church, there's always this rub. If you're a Protestant and you've grown up, you know anything about Roman Catholicism and the split in the Reformation, there's this, whoa, 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 what are we, what are we getting into here? Um, so we, we stand in the stream of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church was uh, and is steeped in false doctrine in the assertion that one must perform good works in order to attain heaven. Now, I don't just say that willy-nilly. I don't take my word for it. I'm going to give you some verbatim examples from the Roman Catholic Catechism, just so you understand the dichotomy of what I'm going, what we're going to be walking through in the Book of James versus what the Roman Catholic Church says. Okay, 
um, Canons and Doctrines, uh, number 1987, says, this is the Roman Catholic Church, the grace of the Holy Spirit has the power to justify us, that is, to cleanse us from our sins, and communicate faith in Jesus Christ through baptism. So there's something you must do. So baptism is a work. It's a means of grace whereby a recipient of baptism is saved. Uh, You go a little further in their canons into uh, 1992. Just the short four-word sentence says, justification is conferred in baptism. Okay? So a work. They're they're works-based. If you go to canon 2068, Second Vatican Council confirms. uh, This is a little lengthy, so I'll condense it for you. But the bishops who are the successors of the apostles, receive from the Lord the mission of teaching all people and preaching the gospel to every creature. And and we're like, yes. The Protestants are like, we affirm that. We affirm that. Even though the Pope said last week, don't do that. Um, We we affirm that. Uh, Every creature, so so that men, all men and women may attain salvation through faith, through baptism, and through the observance of the commandments. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We were tracking with you guys until you said that stuff. That's the Council of Trent. Um, If anyone would say that a man is truly absolved from his sins and justified because he believes himself absolved and justified in faith, or, or that no one is truly justified but he who believes himself to be justified and that by faith alone, listen to what the Council of Trent says. Let him be anathema. Do you remember that word from Galatians? It means cursed and damned to hell. Cast out of the church, anathema, and cursed to hell. So, so the Roman Catholic Church says, if you believe that you are justified before God by faith alone, you are anathema. So, I just set all that up, right? Because Roman Catholicism, attaining salvation, being justified, being right in God's eyes, is not an instantaneous event received in faith. It's a process that you accomplish by works. And so as we talk about works, it would get confusing if we don't make that clear at the onset. I, I go to the trouble to share that because we're not Catholic, um, and the Reformation was good and necessary to get Jesus' church back on track with right doctrine. That wasn't just a semantics issue over words. People died and shed their blood so that we would have right doctrine, okay? But this issue also sets up a perceived conflict in the church today between the role of faith and works. So people get confused about that because of that split from Roman Catholicism. So should we even be talking about works? Why is James even in the Bible? We, we, we went through Galatians and we saw really clearly salvation is by faith alone, not by works. So what's the deal? Why is, why is James even in our Bible? Why does he push works so hard on the Christian? And so salvation is by grace alone and it's through faith alone So what we're talking about here in James is the difference between our justification and our sanctification. So let me spell that out. When you stood at, who in the room married? Okay, so you stood at the altar on your wedding day and the pastor, the officiant said, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And in that moment, you are legally declared married. And you are. But what has changed? And the answer is nothing except your legal status. Right? In that moment, there's a legal declaration and you are married even though you have just only in that moment begun to experience marriage. And now, <laughs> newlyweds and people who've been married less than five years, there's a learning curve. Whoop. You get to experience being married now. 
And that goes on for the rest of your life, right? And so that's the difference between justification and sanctification. When we're justified, when we put our faith in Jesus, there's a legal declaration that says you are saved. But you're only just beginning in that moment to experience what it means to be saved. And so Jesus begins to relentlessly sanctify you and make you holy and make you more like Jesus. And there's a high, steep learning curve, just like there is in marriage. And it's beautiful and wonderful. And so Ephesians 2, Paul would say this, verses 8, and eight 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved, past tense, that's a done deal, through faith. You put faith in Jesus, the grace was given to you, and you are saved. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, salvation's a gift of God. It's not a result of your works, so that no one can boast. You can't say, God, look what I did. I, I climbed the mountain to reach you. Nobody gets to say that. It's, it's a gift. Salvation is a gift extended by God. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say something that almost sounds the opposite. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He go, well, what are you saying, Paul? Which is it? He's saying, well, when you get saved by faith, you put your faith in Jesus, one of the things that happens is that God has already set some things before you. You can walk in these things that he's called you to as a follower of Jesus and do good works. Not because they save you, but because you're grateful for the salvation that you've received by faith, right? And so good works are the natural result and byproduct of the saving work of God in our lives by the power of the Spirit. It's the natural byproduct. It's not the thing that gets us to salvation. It's the thing that flows out of salvation. So let me help you see why Paul and James are not at odds. It is true that works do not save a person, but good works demonstrate the reality of salvation in the individual. They are a natural byproduct. So we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, um, but grace and faith are never alone, right? They're never alone. They produce change and obedience in the person who receives grace. So Paul's emphasis in his writings is any works that lead up to a relationship with God um, or in an attempt to merit or attain salvation by what we do, that's, you can't do it. It's useless. That's not the way we get to God. That's Paul's emphasis prior to that justification. Works are not going to get you there. But James's focus is the works before men, not before God, but, but to demonstrate the validity of your salvation. James focused on that, and, and our claims to know Jesus and to be saved have to be backed up by the way we live. You can't be one of those people who says, I got hyper, hyper, hyper grace. Well, what does that mean? It means at some point I said the name of Jesus and now I can live like hell. It's like, whoa, whoa wait, whoa, wait a minute. That's not what scripture says. So our faith and works do go hand in hand in this regard in that works come about naturally by the spirit in the person who is submitted to and obedient to Jesus because that person's been saved by grace. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking so far? Okay, I just want to set this up because um, you'll hear this about a hundred times in the next eight weeks. Our deeds justify... Well, you're not going to hear that because I screwed it up. Our deeds, let's start over. <laughs> Let me tell you the thing you're actually going to hear, okay? You have notes, Satterfield. Just read the notes. Our deeds verify our words. And our words clarify our deeds. So what I mean is our deeds verify our words, 
they, uh, uh, what, we, what we do validates the reality of the gospel in us. How we live validates the gospel in us. And then our words clarify our deeds. People are like, why are you so nice? Why are you always helping us? The, the, the people who work at the theater right now, they're like, why are you guys so helpful? Why is it every time you're around, you're like, what can we do to help? Well, because our words and the, the, what we're, what, why we do what we do and how we live is, is the gospel. These things go hand in hand. So our deeds verify our words and our words clarify our deeds. And so when they ask those questions, like, why are you guys so nice to us? Well, because Jesus has saved us and he loves us and we want to we wanna love people with the love of Jesus. So we're, now we're clarifying why we are trying to be nice to them and helpful to them, right? So, book of James, a little background here, um, just so that you know what we're getting into. The author uh, is widely thought to be James, the half-brother of Jesus. Same mom, different dad. Um, James was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus' life on earth, but became a follower of Jesus post-resurrection. After seeing Jesus after the resurrection, James becomes one of the leaders at the church in Jerusalem uh, down the road. Uh, And and Peter later in Acts will single him out uh, among other Christians. Um, He's at the, that released from prison in Acts chapter 12. We know that James is on the Jerusalem council. He's the head of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, By the time we get to um, Acts chapter 15. And Paul, we saw in Galatians 2, refers to James as one one of the pillars of the church. So he's, he's held in high esteem as a leader in the church. And James opens his letter with a strong argument for the need for endurance. He calls Christians to, to endurance in the midst of trial. So we're going to tackle this section this morning, but let me set it up with a story because the Christian life just, sometimes it's blissful and then sometimes it just feels like you got on the wrong roller coaster and they didn't strap you in. Um, Chippy the parakeet, you know it's going to be a good story when you start with Chippy the parakeet. He never saw it coming. One second, peacefully perched in his cage. The next moment, he was sucked up, washed up, blown over. See, the problem began when Chippy's owner decided to clean out the cage with a vacuum cleaner. And uh, she was removing the attachment from the end of the hose, stuck the hose in the cage, and the phone rang. So she turns to pick up the phone, and suddenly there's, she barely gets out the word hello when you hear this, Zoomp. what was that? And she turns and Chippy's like, up the tube, right? So she's gasping, she's panicked, she puts down the phone, she turns off the vacuum, she opens the bag, and there's Chippy, still alive, stunned, quite dirty, covered in dust she grabs him and she does the next thing that she thinks to do which is get the bird clean so she runs to the bathroom turns on the cold water and sticks the bird under the cold water it's like what are you doing so chippy's under the freezing water and then she realizes after just a moment that chippy's shivering uncontrollably so she does what any compassionate bird owner would do she grabbed the hair dryer that's laying there just starts drying the bird poor chippy never knew what hit him Days after the trauma, the local little little small town newspaper reporter called to do a story on Chippy and asked, so how's Chippy recovering from the trauma? And the bird owner said, well, you know, Chippy doesn't really sing that much anymore. He just kind of sits and stares. <laughs> and to be honest with you, some days I feel like Chippy. Some days it's just like, uh, 
It's like the, the, the instruction label on the Christian life sh- reads, shake well before using. Like God's just, stop, stop. I can't take anymore. But that is what God does sometimes. He does shake things up in our lives. The word of the, the Lord says that he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So becoming a Christian doesn't mean all your trials, troubles, and tribulations are over. Okay? It just means we have context for God's purpose. You guys are done, man. You're done. You're not going to make it through the rest of the sermon because you're just picturing Chippy now and, and you're just done for the rest of the time. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, listen to the podcast later. It'll be good. The Bible tells us how to respond to trouble when it comes, but it also tells us that trouble will come. So let's look at James, because this is what he's warning us about in chapter 1. We'll go verse 1 down to verse 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and the flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So let's go back. Look at verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul's telling us that we can be certain about the reality of trials. It is a certainty in our lives. There's no getting around it. He begins by saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. It is significant that he says when you encounter trials, not if you encounter trials, but when you encounter trials. And we really, as as 21st century American Christians, have to get in the mindset of expecting that we're going to go through trials. I don't know, for so long as a, as a young married, uh, a new daddy and a, and a new husband just getting torqued every time something would go wrong. And I didn't know how to fix it. I didn't know what to do about it. But I just get angry because I, I, I had this expectation early on. Like things should be great. Things should be easy. And, and that sets us up for failure. Many of us have gotten into that bad habit of thinking that the goal of life is to get along without any difficulties or any obstacles at all. 
And we got to ditch that kind of immature thinking uh, and unrealistic thinking. I mean, you think, where, where do we even get that idea? Because we didn't get it out of the word of God. I mean, God's word's clear. It didn't come from God's word. God never promised it's going to be all smooth sailing. In fact, what did Jesus promise in this world? You will have trials. You will have tribulation. There's some great promises of Jesus in the Gospels. You will be persecuted. There's some great stuff. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you and comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. Even Peter, it's like, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised by this. It'd be like a young man going out for football for the very first time in August and, and gets out on the practice field and he gets knocked down. And he comes running back to the sideline and tears going, they knocked me down. It's like, what did you expect? It's football. <laughs> Have you not watched any football? It's, it, we just kind of enter into life. We, we shouldn't be surprised when we get knocked down. Enduring trials should not come as a surprise to those who follow Jesus. Uh, just as an aside, I think this is why the prosperity gospel is so abominable because it sets people up for failure in lying to them about the Christian life and what they should expect. If you just have enough faith, everything's going to go great and you're going to be wealthy and rich and have all this stuff. And it's like, that's not what the scripture says. So not only can we be assured of trials as part of the Christian life, the certainty of trials, we can also know God's purposes in those trials. Look at verse five down to verse eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You don't have wisdom? You don't have understanding? Ask God. God loves to give wisdom. But let him ask, verse 6, in faith without doubting, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person who's who's coming to God with this doubtful heart about about the wisdom God can provide shouldn't suppose that they're going to receive anything from the Lord, because that's a double-minded person who's unstable in all their ways. Come to the Lord and just ask him and believe that he's going to give you wisdom. So what are God's purpose in trials? Let me give you a couple here. Number one, God's purpose in trials is to draw people to himself. He wants to draw people to himself in the nearness of his presence. I'll just read you a quick paragraph, an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's uh, short little book, The Problem of Pain. If you've never read Lewis's uh, The Problem of Pain, can I just recommend that you do that in 2020 as, as a late um, resolution that you would read C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain. He says this, I am progressing along the path of life in my ordinary contented condition when suddenly there's a stab of pain that threatens serious disease or, or there's some newspaper headline that threatens us all with destruction. At first I'm overwhelmed and all my little happinesses look like broken toys. And perhaps by God's grace I succeed for a day or two to become a creature consciously dependent upon God, drawing its strength from the right source. But the moment that the threat is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to my toys. Thus the terrible necessity of tribulation is only too clear. God has had me for but 48 hours and then only by dint of taking everything else away from me. Let him sheathe the sword for just a minute and I behave like a puppy that hate, the hated, when the hated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can and race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness in the nearest flower bed. And that is why tribulation cannot cease until God has remade us. If you, if you don't believe this, like, get a dog. Anytime we bathe our dog, 
she finds a horse patty. It's like, what is wrong with you? But we're, we're kind of wired that way, spiritually. It's like, I just want to be comfortable. I just want to do my thing. I just want to be left alone. And so God has to take all of our comfort away from us so that we see him and we press into him and we want him and we need him. And then the moment he gives us the stuff back, we're like, who are you? What? It's so true. Doesn't your heart resonate with the truth of your own experience in this? So God purposes trials to draw his people near to himself, to bring us near to him. That's number one. He also purposes to test our faith. That's number two. Testing, trying, purifying, all of them synonymous in scripture, these themes, when it comes to what God is doing and when we're going through hard things, hard circumstances. Um, there's a story I read this week of a ladies Bible study in the early 1800s that was happening in Dublin, Ireland. And they were reading in the book of Malachi and they came to chapter three and and they read verse three and they were fascinated by what they read where it says, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And they thought, we don't have any actual experience with that. We don't know what that means. So they took a field trip into Dublin uh, to find a refiner of a a silversmith who refined silver so that they could understand more fully what that verse meant. They had never experienced that. And so they they found someone and they went to his... his, um, Smithy? I don't don't know what you call the place where he would be, but yeah, the silversmith, okay? And, uh, And he said to them, here's what you have to do. You have to sit with a steady eye fixed on the furnace. You gotta just, you gotta watch it. Because if the time needed for refining is exceeded in the least, the silver is, is damaged and injured beyond repair. I thought that's interesting. So, so there's, there's a timing of this. You don't go beyond the timing because you, you can do damage to it. And Christ sees it needful to put his children into the furnace of affliction, but he's seated right there beside it watching patiently. His eye is steadily intent on the work of purifying and his wisdom and his love are engaged in the best manner to do that in the lives of his children. And, and all that is to say our trials don't come at random. But the other point of interest that I, I got out of the story that I thought was just fascinating was that those ladies learned that day... Uh, Uh, what was the way by which you can tell the process of purification is actually complete? When you can look down into into the silver and see your reflection clearly. It's pure. And I thought, man, that is a powerful metaphor of what God's doing. He is allowing affliction, trials, tribulation, because he's refining the image of God in us so that he can see himself more clearly in us. That is beautiful. God uses trials to test our faith so that his image is more clearly seen in our lives as we reflect his character to the people around us. So what are God's purposes in trials? Well, that was number two. And then here's number three. Trials mature us and grow us as followers of Jesus. They mature us and grow us. Um, I don't know if you, I read this and I, I haven't, this is one of those things you go, should I, should I say this? Because I don't know if this is true, but it's a pretty reputable source. But in ancient times, when a slave was being set free from bondage by his master, uh, often, depending on the culture, there'd be a single blow that would hit that slave uh, in the side of the head, just punch him in the head, like a parting blow. And I'm not sure why. Sometimes it was really hard. Sometimes if the master really cared about this particular slave that they were letting go, it wouldn't be very hard. But Regardless of the force of the blow, this person who is now free didn't care how hard the blow came. They only cared about the fact that they were now free. 
and were matured. They were growing in this experience, even though it was painful. No knight who's being dubbed by a king or a queen complains about how heavy the sword is as it rests on their shoulder. You know, or if, if by some mistake the king or queen nicked them on the neck, oh, I'm bleeding. It's like, you're being knighted. That stuff, okay, that's, that's light and momentary compared to this thing that's happening to me right now, right? It wouldn't be seen uh, as a mere trifle compared to the fact that you were now a knight. And when the Lord intends to lift his servants up to a higher stage of spiritual life and maturity, uh, he will send trials to accomplish that. Think of Jacob, the patriarch of Israel, and the, the knight he spends wrestling with God. Here's a guy whose name means heel grabber, deceiver, usurper, and he's and he's wrestling with Jesus, but after that, he's called prince of God, governance of God, but he also walked with a limp for the rest of his life. So God will send a trial to, to it's almost like a level up, right? It's a level up. And so who among us would wish in those moments when we see clearly through the lens of God's word to be deprived of the trials that he's given us when we know that what he's doing is bringing about Christ-likeness in us? When we can see it clearly, it gives us handholds in the moment because trials draw us near to God. They test us, they mature us, and we need to remember his purpose in it. And then, and then lastly in this, this section here, trials and temptations are not synonymous. I just want to make that really clear. We use that phrasing pretty commonly, I'm going through trials and temptations. Those are really different things. A trial can be, often is, designed by God to bring about his purposes. Temptation is not sent by God. The word is really clear here in James. God doesn't tempt anybody. That's not from him. Trial and temptation, different things. They go hand in hand as the hardship and pressure of a trial often can and does bring about temptation because we're looking for some other way out. We're tempted because our flesh is weak, but that's not from the Lord. The temptation doesn't come from the Lord. So to use trial and temptation interchangeably is a big mistake. And here's the most important distinction you need to know. Again, trials often sent by God, and his purpose in the trial is always redemptive. It's always redemptive. You know, whether they're sent by God or allowed by God, but temptation never comes from God. James makes it abundantly clear here in chapter one. So just keep that in mind as we, as we go back to verse 12. He says, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial, right? Here's the clarity. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Man, I just want to be done with this hardship. I just want to be done with this trial. I just want to feel better. Move on. That's, that's our own temptation. That's our own desires leading us into temptation. And when those desires have conceived, they give birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So what do we do? What's our response to this? Well, number one, our response to trials is joy. <laughs> not what we would naturally just go, I should just have joy about this. I know, that's what scripture tells us because we don't naturally gravitate towards that. So here, here's, how we, here's how we manage that. Look at verse two again, two, three, and four. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, why would I count it joy? This is hard. I don't like this. This doesn't feel good. 
Everything in my culture tells me only do what feels good. Why would I be joyful about this? Well, verse three, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness will have its full effect so that you will be mature, complete, fully formed in Christ Jesus and lacking nothing. Isn't that what you really want deep down in your heart, redeemed by Jesus, to be like him? See, if our trials are certain, you can just say, all right, well, let's just grin and bear it. Let's just get it over with. And maybe that's been your attitude in the past. But summed up in a word, you know, they might say, you might say something like, well, trials aren't, are, are necessary, but they're terrible. I hate them. They're, they're bad. And that's not what James's attitude is at all. He's saying trials are the opposite of the way the world sees them. They're actually good because they're bringing about Christ-likeness in the children of God. And, and so we're to count it all joy and to have this broader uh, eternal perspective on what's happening than just, this feels crummy. I don't like this. Like that's, that's, the, that's the emotional five-year-old response to trial. And we're supposed to grow into Christ-likeness and say, no, God has a purpose in this, and I, and I don't like it. And it doesn't feel good, but I believe in faith that God's bringing something about in me that's, that's for my good and for the good of the people around me. So we walk in faith. The theme of rejoicing in trials is found repeatedly in God's word. I'll give you three examples. My fingers aren't working. I put four up. I meant three. I don't know how to count anymore. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And here's a guy that suffered a lot. We know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Character produces hope. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for just a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Even Peter says, look, these things are hard. They, they, they grieve us when we have to go through them because they're painful. And for just a little while, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, though it's tested by fire and refined, may be found a result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus. See how Peter uses the same idea of the refiner here? He's talking about gold, not silver, but it's the same idea. God is refining us. He's purging all the impurities out of us and making us pure before him. All the way back in Psalm 4, verses 6 and 7, the psalmist says, there are many who would say, who's going to show us anything good? I just want to, I just want to not think about how hard life is right now. I just want to not think about how difficult this trial is. Who can show me something good? He says, lift up your, the light of your face upon us, O Lord. That's, that's good. That's what's good. You put more joy in my heart than when the grain and new wine abound. Now, now that doesn't mean anything to us. <laughs> but if you lived in an agrarian society where you raised all your own food, and, and you get to the harvest, and it's a bountiful harvest, and there's new grain and new wine coming out of the grape fields, man, that is a time of rejoicing and celebration. And the psalmist is saying, in the midst of the trial, when God uh, just lifts up the light of his face on us, and we know that he's with us, and he's near to us, and he's near to the heavy, heavy-hearted, the broken-hearted, it's better than when the grain and new wine abound to, in that culture in that, in that time. 
There's, there's a peace and a joy that comes from the presence of God. See, the world rejoices when they have plenty of grain and wine. In other words, circumstances are good. Circumstances are easy. But the Bible says that we as Christ followers can rejoice even what people will call bad circumstances, trials, difficulties. And, and that's not a call for us to engage in some kind of uh, unbalanced masochism where we try to make ourselves happy to suffer. That's not what this is calling us to. But it's a response in faith. It's a response in faith that sees beyond the circumstance to the purpose of God in the circumstance. And so rather than responding in the flesh, we're told to consider it joy. Consider it all joy. The word consider means it's a response in faith. It doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. Now, we're not denying those realities. But by faith, we choose to believe that God has a purpose in what we're going through. And that he's going to bring about something that's good for us as a result of it. We believe that. So our response in trials is joy. And our response in trials is to ask for wisdom. We stop and we say, God, just like, just like James says here in chapter 1, ask for wisdom. Wisdom is less about our understanding of what God is doing or trying to bring about. You may not ever get that from your trial. Wisdom is more about asking God, what, what should my response be? I don't need to understand all of what you're doing right now. I just need to know how you want me to respond. How do you want me to proceed forward? Do you want me to just wait on you? Is there something you want me to do? What, what do I need? How do I respond to you right now? That's wisdom. And it's the difference between being focused on the outcome and being focused on the process. If we get focused on the outcome, we're just trying to get done, get done, get done. And focused on the process, we're just, we're just communing with God in the midst of it. We're just waiting on him. And that's what he calls us to. At one point, I was suffering as a 20-something single guy. I had met this girl, the girl of my dreams, and I wanted to marry her. She was giving me mixed signals. Um, she's not in the room, so I can tell you this. Um, she, was, she was giving me mixed signals, man. Like, I want to marry you. I love you. And then and five minutes later, you don't want to marry me. And then five minutes later, it's like, I don't know if I love you. And I'm like... I'm confused. I just, I like you. I want to marry you. And a very wise mentor in my life named Bob Dukes sat down with me to pray with me. And he showed me this verse. And it's been a verse I've come back to in in various trials the last 20 years. I've come back to this verse so many times. Even this fall when I was struggling with depression and, and wrestling with what does success look like as a church planner. And God said, I didn't call you to success. I called you to faithfulness, right? This verse, again, just such a key verse. I want to share it with you this morning. Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 50, verse 10 and 11. Listen to what Isaiah says. The Lord says through him, who among you fears the Lord? And obeys the voice of his servant. So two qualifiers. You, you, you fear God and you want to obey the word of God. Who among you would say that's true of your heart in the midst of a trial? Okay, so if that's you, then he says this. Let him who walks in darkness, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So, so in this trial, you can't see the way forward. You don't know where you're going. You don't know how this is going to end or what's going to be the outcome. But you, what does it say? You, you trust in the name, the character of God, and you are relying on his word. You, you're believing him in faith. Here's what you do. He says, behold, first of all, what you don't do, verse 11, all of you who would kindle your own fire and equip yourself with burning torches, He says this, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled 
and this you will receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Oof. They go, well, what is a other person supposed to do who believes? Well, you just keep doing what you've already said. I believe the Lord. I'm waiting on the Lord. Lord, what do you want to bring about in me right now? What do you want my response to be right now? I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you. I'm not going to try to figure this out. I'm not going to try to wriggle out from under this. I'm not going to try to make my own way forward because you said really clearly, I go lighting my own fire trying to figure out how to get out of this maze of darkness. I'm going to make it worse, not better. Okay, I'm just going to sit still. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep waiting on you. That's the reality. Our response to trial is joy. Our response to trial is to ask the Lord for wisdom. And then our response to trials is to stand in faith. We embrace trials because we know that we'll be in a position later to be a comfort to others, to give wisdom to others who are going through trials. Right? Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction, in our trials, so that we, listen to the purpose here, so that we would be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort we received, uh, which, with which we were comforted by God. So what we receive from God, the grace we get, the comfort we get, is not for us to be hoarding. It's, it's for us to understand and receive so that later we can give it to others. We can be a conduit of grace. Verse 5, he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope is that you, our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. In 2005, the Saudi family lived in Athens, Georgia. We'd been at the campus of the University of Georgia for five years at that point, and we had two little boys, and they were just the cutest little boys, and they've grown up to be strapping young lads. But um, we lost our third son in 2005. We lost Luke six months in the womb, and... Our campus ministry, our students gathered in our home that week, and we were grieving. And I remember us being gathered in the living room and and feeling like even though I was, it was one of those moments where you let him who sits in darkness, you just can't see anything around you, you can't see your way forward. And I remember us singing, blessed be the name of the Lord that night with, with about 20 college students in our living room. And a couple of days later, being part of the graveside service for Luke. And then Jen, because of her body's, you know, her body's trying to build up a baby and her immune system's trying to tear down a baby and all the biochemical stuff happening with her, she went through six months of depression because her body chemistry was so out of whack from that experience. And, and, and just, we believed in faith that God had a purpose in that. We couldn't see it. We couldn't see it. But a year later, God gave us Abigail, the baby whisperer. Even now, she's got one asleep. Unexpected. We think, God, thank you for your blessings. Couldn't see that. Didn't know how we're going to get there. But the story doesn't end with God giving us another kid. You see, we believe that God had a purpose. He would use what we had been through for the benefit of others somehow. We didn't know how. And so, fast forward to life in the Pacific Northwest. Ten years ago, 
next week, we moved here. We arrived and we began uh, to, to do ministry at Smoky Point Community Church in Arlington. And, and we started a young adult group there. Um, and we, we met a couple at the well, which is the name of our young adult ministry, named Matthew. Well, they weren't a couple then. Matthew Chestnut and uh, Hannah. And they got married. And, uh, and then they lost their first baby, Ephraim, at eight months in the womb. And it was just such a beautiful thing that we were positioned to walk with him through that season going through the very thing we had gone through and to just walk with them and love them and pray with them and say, I'm not sure how God's going to use all this later in your lives, but we've been here and we know that he's good. Trust him and just to pray with him and, and comfort them. And blessed be your name have been the song that got me through that season. And then as we went to do the memorial for Ephraim with the chestnuts, good, good father became my new blessed be your name. And, and so it's just crazy how God uses trials to prepare us to minister to other people long before we can see or understand his purposes. And that's why it's by faith, not by sight. We chose to believe there was a purpose and that it will be revealed in the proper time, and that's what it means to walk by faith. So James would say here towards the end, don't be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift, the the, the joy and the blessing and the wisdom that's going to come out of this trial, all that, the good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. He doesn't change He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we would be a first fruits of his creation. He's bringing about grace and redemption in us. Bringing it about. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You know, I said this earlier, and I want to circle back to it as we, as we close. The life enhancement gospel, the prosperity gospel, wars against the understanding that I just unpacked for you this morning. It's antithetical to what I've shared with you this morning, this false gospel that's everywhere in our culture. If you've been around Emmaus Road, you will recognize this illustration. If you're, if you're just uh, considering the claims of Jesus, if you've not come to faith in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus yet, you're like a person on an airplane seated in row 27 on the aisle. And if you're like me, you got big, big wings in the that elbow takes a lot of damage on the aisle from the drink cart. But you're, you're seated there, and the flight attendant comes to you, and uh, you're, you're already at 30, you're cruising along at 30,000 feet, and the flight attendant says, Sir, ma'am, I need you to put this on. And I hand you a parachute. <laughs> well, why do I need to put on a parachute? And that flight attendant says, Well, if you put on the parachute, it will enhance your flight experience, it will have a better flight. And so just imagine me. I'm just shy of six feet tall. I'm in economy class. My knees are already in my chin. And I'm like, yeah, I'll put on the parachute. Managed to get that thing onto my back. And now I'm hunched over in the seat. And my face is against the folded up tray table in front of me. Am I having a good flight experience? I don't know. I'm willing to give it a little time. I'm going to try the parachute out. She said the, the, the promise was an enhanced flight experience. I'm going to give it a little time. And then... Here comes the 
the flight attendant back through the cabin and, and, and uh, try to flag her down. She keeps going, doesn't see me. But I notice as I look around the cabin that the other passengers are not wearing parachutes, but they are snickering and pointing and, and laughing and starting to giggle just a little bit because I'm the only, the only person on the plane right now that's wearing a parachute. But I was promised a bill of goods. If I wear the parachute, it will enhance my flight experience. And so I'm willing to persevere just a little bit here with the giggling and the pointing and the sneering and the chuckling because I think this thing's going to deliver on the goods. A few minutes later, drink service comes to the cabin. That same flight attendant spills hot coffee in my lap. She's reaching across to give somebody else a coffee. Now it's all over me. And I'm realizing really quickly that this is not enhancing my flight experience. And the people are laughing at me for wearing the parachute. And in a moment of frustration and anger and disgust, I just get up in the aisle, take the parachute off, throw it down on the floor. Because what was the promise? This will enhance your flight experience, your in-flight experience. And it hasn't. It's made it difficult. It's, It's brought trials into my life. It's made this harder, not easier. But my motive was me. Now, rewind with me for just a minute. Go back to that first encounter with the flight attendant. And, and, and I asked the question, why should I put on the parachute? What's the reason I need to put on the parachute? And the answer is not. This will enhance your in-flight experience. But in about 10 minutes, this plane's going to plummet out of the sky. And you're going to have to jump to save your life. There's not going to be a water landing We're over the middle of the United States. There's no lakes here. You're going to have to jump. This parachute will save your life. Well, now I'm hunched over in my seat with my face crammed against the seat back in front of me. And and it's not such a bother. You see? It's not such a bother. And I noticed that other people were snickering and they're laughing at me. And I'm actually not uh, offended by that. I'm actually concerned for them because they're not wearing parachutes. See? I'm not taking offense at their snickering and pointing and laughing. I'm concerned about the fact that they're going to die and they don't have a parachute. My, my, my mentality, my mindset's totally changed. And here comes the drink service. And I get some hot coffee on me. I'm just that much more ready to jump out of the plane. You see how it changes everything. The motive changes everything. Why we come to Christ changes everything. And if you come to Christ to say, make my life better, make much of me, make this more comfortable for me, you're going to be disappointed. At some point, you're going to rip the parachute off and throw it on the ground. But if you come to Christ because he's the only way you're going to make it into the next life, he's the parachute and you've got to jump from the plane, man, that motive changes everything. The motive of our faith, the why we are trusting Jesus matters deeply. So James would say, do not be deceived. You will have trial. Do not be deceived. I do something I never, ever do. I'm going to end with a poem. But it's a great poem. It's called The Refiner Sat by the Sevenfold Fire. It's a hymn, actually, by a, a man named James Gray. And this is what he writes. He sat by the fire of sevenfold heat as he watched by the precious ore. And closer he bent with a searching gaze as he heated it more and more. He knew he had ore that could stand the test and he wanted the finest gold to mold as a crown for the king to wear set with gems of price untold. 
So he laid our gold in the burning fire, though we fain would have said to him, Nay, no. And he washed the dross that we had not seen as it melted and passed away. And the gold grew brighter and yet more bright. And our eyes were so dim with tears as we saw the fire, not the master's hand. And we questioned with anxious fear. Yet our gold shone out with a richer glow as it mirrored a form above that bent over the fire, though unseen by us with a look of infinite love. Can we think that it pleases his loving heart to cause a moment of pain? No, but he saw through the present cross the bliss of eternal gain. So he waited there with watchful eye, with a love that is strong and sure, and his gold did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. Trusting in, hoping for your deliverance is not the same as having faith in God. Faith means I hold fast to the gospel, I hold fast to the belief in God and trust him regardless of the outcome, regardless of the circumstance. I choose to believe God has a purpose in my affliction. In this life you will have trials and the pain of trial can be overwhelming in the moment. Some of those pass, others linger. My question this morning, is Jesus enough? Is he enough? Father, we pray to you this morning in your name that for every heart here, and maybe in this moment, not every heart could say you're enough, but that we come to the place where we believe it. We walk in faith. I can say with 100% assurance that every life in this room will experience trial going forward. We've already experienced trials, and we will experience trials. And I can't say to you, Lord, that I'm thrilled about that circumstance but I know that you have a purpose. We believe that you have a purpose. And even though the circumstances are hard, we choose to walk in faith. Prepare our hearts, Lord. Make us ready to respond in joy when you allow trials of various kinds in our lives because we know that the end result, your purpose is to bring about Christ-likeness in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.